This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks. For decades, Australia has exported fossil fuels to Asia to fuel the continent's economic growth. But as Asia signals a transition away from dirty energy, Australia is pivoting towards clean energy exports. One of the most exciting projects on that front is the Australia ASEAN Powerlink. It is the world's largest solar and storage project, which will generate solar power from Australia's sun-drenched Northern Territory and pipe it to Singapore via a 3,800-kilometre electrical cable along the seafloor. If successful, the $22 billion project could help break Singapore's heavy dependence on natural gas for electricity. It could also boost clean energy uptake in the Northern Territory and set an example for similar renewable energy exports projects elsewhere around the world. Joining the EcoBusiness podcast to talk about this hugely ambitious endeavour is Fraser Thompson, director of Sun Cable, the project's developer. Welcome to the podcast, Fraser. Thank you for having me, Robert. So it's a really exciting project that Sun Cable and yourself is working on. First, can you tell us a bit about what stage the project is at now? Sure. So as you know, we're building the, the world's largest solar farm uh, at 17 to 20 gigawatts in uh, the Northern Territory in Australia, the, the world's uh, largest battery to support that of 36 to 42 gigawatt hours and, and the world's longest undersea cable. And so the, the project will link uh, the town in Elliot, where the solar farm is located, to, to Darwin, and then through to Singapore, um, supplying in 2027 with full capacity in 2028. Um, where we are at the moment um, is well on track, where we, we hope to be. So from an operational standpoint, uh, we are well advanced. We've done the subsea survey already for the Australian portions of the waters. We're just commencing the Indonesian and Singapore sections of the subsea survey. Um, we're also doing significant work around testing different uh, battery and solar designs at the, the site. Um, on the regulatory side, it's been really pleasing as um, you have seen that we got root approval um, in Indonesia, which is a, a big milestone for us, uh, as well as we've got major project status uh, in the Northern Territory in Australia, which is really important for us because it really helps with all the regulatory approvals needed, but it also should give a, a real sign of confidence that the Australian government is, is fully behind this project. Uh, and then finally, on the customer side, um, we'll be supplying um, roughly 1.8 gigawatts into Singapore. Um, and we have launched an expression of interest um, to key strategic off-takers. Um, and we expect that will be um, uh, oversubscribed um, when it comes to an end at the end of this year. Hugely exciting. Now, um, one area that is a potential obstacle is fundraising. Now, I've seen a few figures, but it's estimated that the project all in all will cost around 22 billion US dollars. Do correct me if I'm wrong. How is fundraising going for the project? Yeah, look, twenty-two billion is, is um, probably going to be even between twenty-two and twenty-six billion on the the the, the final costings of this as we uh, continue to iterate on the size of this the solar farm. Um, in in terms of the the capital side, of this we're, we're very pleased. First of all, as part of our key investors, we have um, Grok, which is with Mike Cannon Brooks, is one of Australia's leading uh, technology entrepreneurs and the co-founder of Atlassian, uh, and we have Squadron Energy, which um, uh, associated with. Uh, Andrew Twiggy Forrest, who again is one of Australia's um, most successful entrepreneurs and a, and a real passionate advocate for, for hydrogen and, and the, the energy transition. Um, so we, um, we're very privileged to have uh, them involved, not only because of their um, significant financial resources, but their passion for bringing this project. 
in terms of the, the broader funding of this project, um, the, the interesting thing about this is that capital is not such an issue. There's an abundance of capital right now um, looking for projects in the sustainable investment area. Uh, and, and the challenge is often they can't find projects of the scale of the, the funds that need to be deployed. Um, so we've had a significant number of conversations with key investors around the world. Uh, we feel very comfortable in terms of the amount of um, equity we'll be able to raise on this on, on the project. So for us, it's actually ironically the, 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 financial, the financing side is actually one of the easiest bits of this project. Yeah, interesting. I'd imagine that a project of this scope, I mean, it's hugely ambitious, but um, you know, I would imagine market sentiment and consumer sentiment um, is very supportive of a project like this. You touched on regulation um, earlier on, Fraser. Any more sort of regulatory hurdles you expect for the project? Well, look, I think the good thing is that uh, the, the Singapore um, regulatory market for the energy system is very, very similar to, to Australia's and actually it was modelled on certain aspects between the, the system. So we, we sort of speak the same language when it comes to thinking about the regulation of, of the markets. Um, I think that the key thing that um, we've been working with um, Singapore government around is uh, ensuring that a project of this scale, which is around 15% of electricity supply in 2027, 2028, uh, is, um, uh, has the right kind of reliability and can deliver on, on time, given this importance for where Singapore wants to go. Um, now, one of the key things coming up, there's a, there's a four, um, the Singapore government has recently come out with a, a target for four gigawatts um, of imported electricity. Um, so we're, ours is 1.8 gigawatts, so we're not the only, um, obviously, player in town. There'll be after other projects that will come from different sources, um, which is good because EMA have said that they'd like to diversify. Um, but we think, actually, that we may well see some of those targets increase over time. And that's just because there is a huge demand for um, zero emission electricity in Singapore. And, and just to give you a few examples of this, you've got data centres and semiconductors um, two of the biggest energy consumers in Singapore who have very quickly shifted to zero carbon electricity is not a nice to have, but a license to operate. Similarly, when you look at Singapore's key strategic goals, whether it's around the 30 by 30 food security or the switch to EVs, these are incredibly energy intensive um, exercises. Um, so we think that um, we may well see uh, uh, an increasing in ambition in terms of the amount of imported electricity from zero emission sources that comes down the track in the future. Well, that's a really good point. I think that, that Singapore is doing um, quite a lot to mitigate its own carbon emissions, but there's a lot of pressure actually on Singapore to do more right. So again, the, um, the, the sort of the motivation behind a project like yours is, is, is very high at the moment. Um, what are the biggest challenges you envisage for this project, Fraser? What are the sort of things that I guess that perhaps keeping you up at night? Um, you mentioned that the project is on track for to begin construction, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, 2023, supply electricity to Darwin by 2026, and then Singapore by 2027. So you're on track, but yeah, what's, what's um, worrying you, if, at all, if anything? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll start with the things that I'm not worried about, then I'll switch to the ones that, <laughs> that I have. I think the ones I'm not worried about is that in terms of um, uh, government support from this, from the from the Australian end, and, and I mentioned earlier, we've been very lucky to have such strong support, not only at the Northern Territory level, but the Australian federal government level. And, and the reason I mention this is important is that obviously with such a large volume of supply that we're talking about, the um, we need to make sure that not only operationally it works, 
but then we have the kind of political alignment to make it work too. So if you look at Malaysia recently, they, they recently banned the export of renewable electricity to, to Singapore. And, and, and that's because they had good reason is that they, they realise it's a scarce resource and they need it for their own targets. Um, now, Indonesia has, has renewable electricity too, but it, it too has quite strong domestic targets that it, they will have to meet. Um, compared with Australia, we, we have an abundance of uh, renewable electricity and solar electricity, which we'll never have the need for. So we, you know, our solar resource in Australia couldn't um, power the global energy demand 100 times over. Um, so there will always be that kind of excess and we think that's a good opportunity because we'll never be in a state where we, we feel like we have to cut off the tap, so to speak, to meet domestic needs. I, I guess in terms of things I, we, we do pay a lot of attention to, um, obviously this, the length of this cable that people talk about is like, how do we make sure we build that cable in time to, to hit our targets? Um, so we've been spending a lot of time on, on that. Um, in fact, our, our CEO, uh, David Griffin, was uh, actually doing um, uh, a tour of some of the key um, HVDC manufacturers um, and, and just working with them quite closely to ensure that we get that volume that we need in the timelines. Um, and the good news is that um, uh, we feel extremely confident about um, meeting those deadlines and um, got a good alignment with those key suppliers. The, the question for us, though, will come after the Singapore project. It's only one of the others that we're planning, is that we do really need to ramp up the HVDC manufacturing uh, capacity in this part of the world. At the moment, all the action is really happening in Europe, um, but we, given the scale of potential demand in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, to, to get the, the interconnection that we hope to achieve, we need to really build up that supply chain. So that's one of the things we're looking sort of beyond just the Singapore project, but how do we create the kind of industry and the manufacturing capability that are sure that we don't have the bottlenecks for the, the activity objectives. So what do you mean on that um, cable connection, you know, which is fascinating, right? Uh, the cable will from Darwin, I think, to Singapore will run at about 3,800 kilometers, which is a huge world's biggest. Um, so what, what is the issue with the manufacturing that cable? Is it uh, getting the component parts or is it the engineering problem of laying all that cable? Well, there really are two parts, right? There, there, there is the actual manufacturing of the cable itself. Um, and, um, and then there's obviously the, the deployment of the cable. Now, the HVDC industry is, is, is running hot right now. There's a, there's a lot of demand for, for projects as for various grid connectivity objectives. Um, the, Asia is not the only one that's looking at grid connectivity. You've got, for example, the US is looking at this. Uh, Europe already has 12% um, electricity exchange and looking for 15% by 2030. Um, so all of this will require HVDC cabling. So it's a, it's a market that is... Uh, growing significantly. And so we need to make sure that we get our order books in there to, to secure that supply. The, the good news is because of the, uh, the scale of this project um, and our early engagement with the, the manufacturers is that we're able to, to, to lock in that kind of supply that we need. Um, so we feel confident on that end. And, and then on the, the, the cable deployment end, we've been very working very closely uh, including with our um, project development partners that we've brought in, uh, Bechtel and Hatch on the, the subsea cable, and then obviously um, Specs about a Jurong on the, um, the site development uh, to, to ensure that we, we hit those kind of timelines that we've laid out. So, yes, it's a, it's a challenge, but the, the good thing is that with HVDC, we've, we've, we know how to do this. And even though it's a, a long cable, uh, geologically speaking, it's a relatively straightforward 
route in that it's the water depth is actually pretty shallow for a large part of the way. So 50 metres around Northern Territory, 50 metres around Singapore. Um, so it's a, a long but relatively straightforward um, cable deployment. So we, um, we're very confident of hitting our timelines. Okay. And by HVDC, obviously you mean high voltage direct current cable, right? Um, now with clean energy projects, obviously um, they're hugely important to mitigate climate change, but one issue is of the growing awareness that uh, projects must not harm valuable wildlife habitats um, while they're being built. Obviously with a with huge cabling like that, um, environmental impact is an issue, right? So, so how can you, how are you working to, to mitigate the impact of laying all that cabling, Fraser? Yeah, look, really good question. And, and this is utmost importance for us. So uh, we're a big believer in the fact that projects that uh, aim for decarbonisation must be also nature positive. Right? We can't trade off one aspect of biodiversity for, for another. Uh, so in terms of the cable route, we're, we're doing subsea cable, uh, the subsea survey at the moment. The, the insights that we'll get from that, and not only to understand potential risk factors, but we'll be also looking at sensitive um, uh, geological areas that we want to make sure that we, we don't disturb. The, the, the good news is that when we did the, the desktop analysis, um, we deliberately looked at areas of sensitivity, so we're, we're avoiding all of those, um, but we'll, we'll make sure we revisit those results when we come back and, and do the full subsea survey. Um, the, the good news around this is that the fibre optic industry has obviously been a, a lot more developed um, around some of these issues. And, and so they're starting to get a bit more mature and better around how to, how to manage and safeguard these kind of issues. So we're, we're going to make sure that we put these, these kind of same safeguards in place to make sure we don't have any um, unforeseen issues in terms of environmental impact associated with this. Okay, got you. Now, what do you make of the level of support that this project has got, not just by the financial backers that we've already discussed, but the media, um, public and, and government? Look, it, it's great to see the, the support and attention that is being given. Um, for us, the, you know, the, the bigger mission that we're trying to achieve here is um, taking large-scale renewable electricity, where it's um, most abundant, and taking it to places where it's most needed and where there's less abundance. Um, and Singapore is a case in point, but many places around the Asia-Pacific region suffer from the same issue, is that there's huge demand of, um, for electricity, but they lack the scale. And the scale is, I think, the important word here. They may have some assets, but lack the scale to support that, that growth. Um, so the, the, the bigger opportunity that we see is, is how do we think about grid connectivity across the Asia-Pacific region? Now, the fact that Europe is now 12% cross-border electricity exchange, um, and here in Asia, we're 0.3%. Uh, for me, that spells an, an enormous opportunity for us to really rethink our, our energy systems in this part of the world and build the grid, grid connectivity that allows us to take advantage of these distributed renewable energy assets, but also deals with the intermittency issues and the other uh, problems that we know are, are really a challenge for scaling renewable electricity. That's hugely important. I think, you know, that's one of the most important parts of Sun Cable as a story, right, as you mentioned, is can you make cross-border uh, clean energy connectivity work in Asia, um, which is hugely important. But obviously, you're hopeful that the project will um, succeed. And, and just how significant do you think it is that if Sun Cable makes a good go of this, that um, other projects will, will follow it around the world and, and indeed in Asia? Look, the, 
the opportunity is there. And, and for us, you know, we're a, a very mission-driven um, company that all the, the people at Suncable have, uh, I guess, like the people at Eco Business Hub, we go in there because we're, we are truly passionate about these issues and want to see if we can if we can help shift the, the course on some of these issues that we see. Um, so if we look at the upside potential, we, we released some research uh, recently which showed that if we could match Europe's 2030 goal of 15% cross-border electricity by 2040 in Asia Pacific, what would that look like? And uh, effectively what would create is an, an industry with an annual value, annual turnover of close to 500 billion US dollars per annum um, would create almost 800,000 jobs um, in the region. Uh, and importantly, we would decarbonize the equivalent of three times Japan's current emissions by really forcing gas and coal much quicker out of the grids um, than we are today. So we see the, the upside potential is, uh, is really significant. And, and we do hope there'll be others that come into this space. Um, part of the challenge that we've had though is that past projects have often been done as, as a one-off. So state-owned enterprises who it's not really their day job, but they've kind of been coerced into this and then they don't really have the, necessarily all the expertise that's needed. Um, and then because of that, we start to see grid connectivity um, be behind schedule and, and over costs, et cetera. So we think we need to develop the same kind of expertise that we see, particularly in Europe and deployed in here in the Asia Pacific where it's most needed. Absolutely. Now, final question for you, Fraser. I've been great talking to you. Um, now, I'm talking to you uh, in the middle of the COP26 climate talks. Um, what do you make of what's going on there? Um, how hopeful are you? for a positive outcome from COP and, and how will those negotiations impact what you guys are doing at Suncable? Well, interestingly, our, our CEO, David Griffin, was, has been over at COP um, uh, in the various discussions. And uh, I, I think we're, overall, we're very positive with the feedback. Like we'll never get, you know, 100% satisfaction from, from these discussions. And we'd always like the ambition to be greater. Um, but there have been some really important announcements that have come out. And, and just to pick two. Um, uh, the, the first for me is that you're starting to see a lot of the Asia-Pacific region really ramp up their ambition in terms of what they're doing on decarbonisation. So you know, one example is, is Indonesia, which has signed up to the 2030 um, deforestation pledge, uh, which is just goes to show the broader concern and relevance that we see in, in the Asia-Pacific region. The, the second thing for me was that, that we started to see much more awareness for the first time around grid connectivity as a role to play in decarbonisation. Uh, so Prime Minister Modi from India has, has launched the, the One Sun, uh, One World, One Grid concept. Um, and now it's really starting to get some momentum about how do we really scale grid connectivity. So that for us is, is real positives. Like there's a lot of work to be done and we can't rely on governments alone to, to solve this, but they, they can play important roles in, in setting the enabling framework. And then it's, it's for companies like Suncable to, to really push ahead to, to make sure we, we turn that into a reality in the, in the timelines that we need. Indeed. Well, um, I wish you all the very best of luck, Fraser. I hope it's a, a great success. And thank you so much for your time talking to me on the Eco Business Podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Robin. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.